So this, uh, this morning we're continuing through Exodus. We've made it to uh, one of the more, I was going to say the more troubling passages of, of uh, Exodus, although, I don't know, the whole circumcising in the night thing was a little peculiar <laughs> and troubling as well. So uh, Exodus is just a strange book, let's, let's be honest. So we're in Exodus chapter 12. It's the, the first Passover. And we want to ask a few questions about it. And, and I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I, it's a very interesting, I'm, how do you approach this text, I think is the question that I'm having. And there's, there's a lot that's happening, and we could spend a lot of time working through this story. Um, one of the interesting things, just a couple observations, really briefly over the whole chapter, is one is that, for the people of Israel, this Passover becomes a reorientating of their entire calendar. And so from now on, Passover becomes the key marker of their calendar. It's sort of like many years later, we'll take this holiday and we'll call it Christmas. And we build our calendars and we look forward to Christmas. And then I don't know if you have those people on your Facebook. Well, most people are getting rid of their Facebook now. But if you're still on Facebook, there's always this one psychopath that on like the next day on Boxing Day, they're like, 364 days till Christmas. And you're like, oh my goodness, like let's just let this go, right? And so you, you build your calendar around. And so Passover for the people of Israel becomes this moment in which their entire calendar builds up to and looks back to this moment. This is God changes the way they think about the time. Secondly, um, while it is disturbing this, this death of the firstborn children that happens, the actual passage itself doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, it, it just sort of kind of jumps over it and says, like, and the night came and the destroyer went through and, and there was great crying out in the city. And it's, it's very interesting if you compare that to, to the way that we often think about, like, movies and battles and, and everything always builds up to the great battle any any marvel avengers movie um, it all builds up to the moment of the big battle and then you have like this 45 minutes of explosions and fireworks and battles and how's it going to go and 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 the story doesn't do that it, it's interesting that it just sort of says and this happened and, and you you could think that you're building up to this climactic big battle and it's going to glorify the violence and all of that and yet it it doesn't so I think that says something. I, I, just a, a couple of recaps that, that from Greg. Greg did a really good job. I gave him like six chapters of the Bible and was like, preach that in 20 minutes. And he did pretty good, um, considering, <laughs> considering the massive amount of text. But he, there are a couple of recaps from Greg that I just wanted to remind us of. One, the plagues, as we call them in our common language, are actually called signs and wonders most often. And so it's not about the destruction, it's not about the punishment, and we focus on, oh, like, oh, the plagues, and how bad would that have been? But the primary purpose of Scripture is telling us that these are signs and wonders meant to display who God is to the people, so that they see who Yahweh is, that they would worship Yahweh. Which leads me to the second thing, is that Exodus, Exodus 9.20 tells us that as Moses is going, and he's telling them what's going to happen, Exodus 9.20 says that there's a bunch of, of officials in Pharaoh's court who hear what is happening, believe God's word, run out, get all of their livestock and all of their slaves, and they bring them in uh, to protect them. And so there is, 
it's not just that it's not just that the people of Israel are being protected, but even the Egyptians have the opportunity to respond to God, to see the signs and wonders, and respond in a way that brings salvation to their people, their livestock, their homes. And so it's not just, it's not quite as, as dire as it might originally look like on the surface if you're looking at these hints. Third piece, I, Greg brought this up, and I, I thought this was just an amazing insight is that every time Pharaoh asks for the plagues to be removed, God relents. Even though God knows Pharaoh's going to do it again, that he hasn't quite made it, that God, like Pharaoh's still hardening his heart, he's still choosing to work against God's will, but every time he goes and he says, please stop, God says, okay, and he does. Which is just a, a really, I think that's a good picture of God for us to keep in mind in the midst of these stories. And then the last thing I want to just remind us is that this plague now, as we come into the death of the firstborn children, is not the first plague. There have been nine other moments along the journey in which people had opportunity to turn back, to repent, to let people go, and yet they continue to harden, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart towards God, continues to callous himself to the word of God, and eventually, God says, well, I will judge. But I think it's important for us to remember that God is slow to anger and judgment. God is not flying off the handle here. God has slowly been working towards this. And eventually, there comes a point when in the face of evil, in the face of things that are happening on, in Ukraine and have happened in Somalia and have happened in Rwanda and have happened in Colombia and have happened around the world where there is violence and there is evil and there is death and there is carnage, eventually God, to be just, has to say, enough. Enough. You cannot indiscriminately kill women and children and bomb cities and not have God judge. And so what we see in this story is that God is patient and faithful, working among a nation and a people who is unjust, who is evil, who has been doing horrible things. And God says, well, now I'm going to judge. Now, I do think that Exodus 12 does function a little bit like a Rorschach test. If you know what a Rorschach test is, it's if I hold up this ink blob, what do you see? I don't know, an ink blob, a, a scribble, or maybe I need to turn it this way. Like maybe it's an eye and an eyebrow and some hair or an eagle dropping an egg, or I, I don't know. Like it's just an ink blob. But, but often when you look at an image like that, what it tells you is not what the image is, but what you see. And so once again, I, I do feel that as we come to Exodus 12, our view of what God is like and what we think God is like is going to shape how we read the text. And that's an interesting question for us. So um, I, I saw recently like the top five issues that people have with the Bible. And number one was God's violence in the Old Testament. And so that's where um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time just asking the question, and, and you know, at the really crassest, most base level is simply like, does God kill babies? Because that's, as you read Exodus 12, something you just kind of wonder. Does God actually go and kill the firstborn child of every Egyptian home. For myself, my Rorschach test, my lens, I always go back to John 1, 
18, which says, No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. So whatever the image of God that we will hold, even in the Old Testament, what John is saying is that those are all glimpses and images, shadowed, veiled ideas, culturally veiled, perhaps we might even say, images of God. And Jesus is the one who now comes and makes God known to us. So everything has to align with Jesus. So did Jesus kill babies? becomes my question. Let me offer you a couple solutions of how people have answered this question in Exodus 12. Number one, God is sovereign and killing children is morally acceptable and can bring God glory. Because God is the sovereign God, it is up to, it's his will, he ordains things, and if he decides that this is what needs to happen, don't question it. That's God's will, and God gets glory from the death and suffering of people. So stop. And end, end of discussion. Number two, perhaps a little better, but this would be a fair and just, what we see is a fair and just judgment. So the idea of killing children is not God's idea. This was actually started 80 years prior by a pharaoh who decided that they would kill the firstborn of every, or the males of every, Israelite family, and Pharaoh goes and he takes the children and he kills them, and it was his idea to start this whole thing. And so God will judge with an eye for an eye. Some people have suggested that this is sin cannibalizing itself, the sins of the Father coming back on them. Maybe we read the text too individually sometimes, and we read it about the individual families because that's how we read the Bible. We think about ourselves and our family, and that family, and the, right? But what about a more communal understanding of the whole of the, what happens? And if you think about what's happening right now around the world, as there is war and there is violence, there are many innocent people who are suffering and dying because of the decisions of leaders and politicians of their country. And so if we read this as more of a corporate, um, a corporate judgment upon sin, then perhaps, perhaps that makes sense. It's sin cannibalizing itself. Pharaoh started a war. God will now end it. Number three, uh, who knows? Don't ask. Don't wrestle with it. <laughs> you can't answer this question, so just have faith. Trust God. Um, God will redeem all things. God is good. Trust that God will do justice and sort it out. Um, there's some advantages to that one as well, I think, you know, and, and there is a, a part of my heart that just does, it does believe that God is able to redeem all things. And so can I trust God? Can I trust that God can redeem it? And, and maybe it seems wrong and tr problematic to me as I read the text, but maybe, maybe I just need to trust that God can make it. But I'm going to offer to you a, a fourth way, and, and actually where I have sort of been landing as I wrestle with the text and how do I understand it. It simply is this. God didn't do it. God didn't kill them. Uh, rather, God allows sin, death, evil, Satan, uh, free reign to do what Satan, sin, and death do. Destroy. So if you go to Second Samuel, don't 
you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 24, 1-7, we read that God incites David to do a census. And then God gets upset with the census, and, and then it says that God sends a plague and kills a whole bunch of people. Kind of a weird story, a little bit troubling. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 4, tells the same story, written a couple hundred years later, and they change the story. In 1 Chronicles 21, 4, it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. So what was it? Did God incite him, or did Satan come and incite David? Well, it seems to me, if we read James, that, that God is not in the process, not in the business of tempting people to do evil. And so it makes much more sense that Satan is the one who comes, incites David to do evil, and then there is a plague. Verse 14 of 1 Chronicles says, So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, but as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented. The word there is also repented. Repented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. It's also interesting, the, the Hebrew word for sent, so God sent an angel, can also mean to permit, to give over, or to let go and set free. So God permitted the angel to go. God set free an angel to destroy. So can I suggest to you that a conceivable interpretation Oh, I should, I should show you this. So in Exodus 12, then, we read about this. Uh, where is it? Uh, I'll just read from 21, 12, 21. It says, Then Moses called all the Israel's elders together and said to them, Go pick out one of the flock for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood that is in the bowl, and touch the beam above the door and the two doorposts with the blood in the bowl. None of you should go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord comes to strike down the Egyptians and sees the blood on the beam above the door and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door. And then this is the interesting part to me. He won't let the destroyer enter your house or strike you down. So my question then becomes, well, who is the destroyer? Is that God? Or is that somebody else, another actor in the story, the destroyer? So then let me suggest to you that a conceivable interpretation of both Exodus and Chronicles would be that as Pharaoh has been engaging in the act of decreation, as Pharaoh has been working against God and handing himself over to the evil powers, which is what Ephesians 2 verse 2 says, these people handed themselves over to the evil powers, this is what Ephesians says. When you don't follow God's way, you hand, it's not neutral. You either walk with God or you hand yourself over to destructive spiritual cosmic forces. So Pharaoh has been working in the act of decreation. He's been working against God. He has been handing himself and his people over to evil powers. And there comes a time in which God simply removes his hand of protection and he abandons them to their desires and to their ways, to use the language of Romans 1. And so now those spiritual forces that Jesus told us in John 10 are seeking to kill and destroy are now loose. They are now free to attack those who have been calling on them, 
who have been messing with spiritual forces that they didn't understand. And so we see that God is always watching. God is always protecting. He is keeping us safe from the enemy. But there comes a time when God says, enough. It's time for judgment. And the judgment will be the full weight of your sin as it turns on you. And I will no longer protect you. Psalm 7 says this. In Psalm 7, there's a a metaphor for wrath in which it, it, it describes God letting people experience the wages of their own sin and choices. It says in verse 14, But look how the wicked hatch evil, conceive trouble, give birth to lies. They make a pit, dig it all out, and then they fall right into the hole that they've made. Trouble they cause will come back on their own heads. The violence they commit will come down on their own skull. And so the violence that the people of Pharaoh have committed now comes on their own skulls. So this to me, it seems to me that this is what happened. The people are experiencing God's removal of his protection and the consequence of evil and Satan who are working to uncreate God's good world. So what does that say about Jesus? Because Jesus himself sees himself as the Passover lamb. He says, I am the Passover lamb. I am the the one. And he ties himself to this Passover story very closely. So one of the questions that I just have is, who are we saved from? It's interesting because the Passover story is um, is not a sacrifice in the normal sense of a sacrifice. There's no priest. There's no atonement for sin. There's no temple. It's, it's, it's just rather a, a marker, a, a, a covering over so that the, the destroyer will pass over. So the people are not saved, can I suggest, from God. But they're saved from sin, evil, death, slavery, Pharaoh. I, I think that this is important for us when we think about Jesus' work on the cross. Who does Jesus save us from? On the cross. Sometimes in our theology, in our language, we've actually said, well, it actually kind of sounds like um, we have to be saved from God. God doesn't like you. <laughs> God is wrathful toward you. And if only, if Jesus doesn't cover us over, then we will experience the full weight of God's destructive wrath on us. But that doesn't exist in the story of the Passover, I don't think. What we see, rather, is that the blood covers from the powers of sin and death and evil. And so the cross of Jesus does not save us from God. The cross of Jesus saves us from our enemy who wants to destroy us. Ephesians 2.2 says, You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. So what will set us free from that? Later in Ephesians, he says, we fight not against flesh and blood, but the devil, the rulers, the authorities, the forces of cosmic destruction. So I believe that Jesus defends us not from God, but from sin and death and evil. First John says Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works. The cross is the victory over the powers. It is the freedom from sin and death. It is taking all that we accumulate in our service to the evil one. When we do not serve God, we 
build up wages of death. We owe, we are under the oppression and slavery of the powers of evil. Until Jesus comes and he pays our ransom and he sets us free and he brings us from the, for, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we are set free. Freedom from sin and death. And now the enemy cannot destroy us because we are welcomed and brought into the life of Jesus. We're set free. We are liberated like the people of Israel. We, like Israel, were slaves. And Jesus brings us out by his blood. We are set free and we are invited to join with God to set other people free as well. To invite them into the liberation, the exodus of, of the this power of sin and death that, that holds them into their personal addiction and bondage and, and sin that, that weighs them down and is pulling them. And we come and we speak the word of liberation of Jesus and his life given for their life so that they can come into the kingdom of light. And we work as the church to engage in the systems of systemic evil and racism that impress and hold people down. And we invite them and we work towards the liberation and freedom. In the story of Exodus, we see that God cares about his people individually, but also cares about the broader issue of the slavery of the people. It's not both, it's not one or the other, it's both and. That God invites people to step out of slavery, literal and spiritual. And the work of the church is to go forward and proclaim, God loves you. And on the cross, Jesus provides for you the way of salvation. So that the one who would destroy you will now pass over. You are invited to participate now in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be his liberated people, his free people. And let us walk in the way of freedom. Jesus doesn't have to save you from God. God loves you. Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is God rescuing us, setting us free, joining us, in the way. Probably long enough. There's lots more we could say. I just want to read one last piece of Exodus 12. Verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the land because they thought we'll all be dead. And so the people picked up their bread dough before the yeast made it rise, and with the bread pans wrapped in their robes on their shoulders. The Israelites did as Moses had told them and asked the Egyptians for their silver and gold and jewelry as well as their clothing. The Lord made sure the Egyptians were kind to the people so that they let them have whatever they asked for, and so they robbed the Egyptians. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> One could argue that this is a biblical case for reparations for those who have enslaved those, that we should pay them back. We could talk about that some other time. What I want us to see is I, I always think about Jesus as he robs hell, as he descends to the dead, and he takes those who have been enslaved, and he says, I have the keys of Hades, of hell, of death, and I will set you free. 
we too are invited to live into that victory. No longer afraid, but blessed as we leave the land. Amen.